Well, uh, good morning to you guys. That really was a warm welcome, actually. Huge contrast to, uh, to the weather uh, outside. What happened on the 1st of October? Well, actually, I don't know about you guys. In Dundee, it's been a really kind of soggy two weeks. And my, um, my family and I have only lived in Scotland for a, a year. For the last six years, uh, we lived in Toronto uh, in Canada, where the weather was slightly better than, than here. So over the breakfast table the other day, actually, my almost five-year-old daughter uh, looked at us and said, Mummy, Daddy, why does it always rain here in Scotland? And so my, my wife tried to give a sort of theologically nuanced answer that, you know, well, there are some people praying for rain, like, you know, farmers and, I don't know, ducks and kind of things. And that must have gone in, because at breakfast uh, this morning, we had, um, Mummy, um, could we ask the local farmer to stop praying, please? Because... <laughs> So even at five, the, the questions come. I would say great to uh, be with you this morning and great to dive into you know, this wonderfully huge question, really, about given all the options, all the different options out there uh, in the culture, why choose Jesus? I do a lot, spend a lot of my time speaking on university campuses and in other kind of settings and, and dealing with, uh, with questions, both from friendly audiences like you guys this morning. I also speak to hostile audiences like Baptists. And um, this, this question very seriously of why Jesus comes quite a lot. I meet many sort of students, for example, who will say to me, you know, I figured out there's, there's more to life than just the material. But, you know, given all the thousands of options, why choose Jesus? And so that's what we're going to explore together over the next kind of 40 minutes or so um, this morning. And to set the scene uh, for where we're going, the story is, is told of a university student who was looking for work. He was uh, leafing through the job advertisement section of the local newspaper. And he saw a job ad placed there by the local town zoo. It was a bit vague and a bit mysterious as to what they wanted, but the salary they were offering was quite a good one. So he rang up, booked an interview, and went along for the, the job interview. When he arrived at the zoo, he was told at the start of the interview that there was a pretty unusual position they were looking to fill. See, what had happened is the zoo's star attraction, a gorilla, had died a few days before. And the zoo hadn't got enough money to buy a new gorilla. So what they wanted was somebody to dress up in a gorilla suit and act the part until funds improved. Well, very unusual job, but the money was good and it was a lovely gorilla suit. Uh, And so he took the job. Well, on day one... He found it was pretty easy. He walked around the gorilla enclosure. He made half-hearted monkey noises. And crowds gathered, cameras, phones snapped. People were fooled, but it was boring. So on day two, he thought he'd up the ante slightly. He began leaping around the gorilla enclosure. He swung on the branches. He beat his chest. He did all that kind of stereotypical stuff. The cameras flashed. People uploaded pictures to Instagram. They even threw peanuts and M&Ms. This was quite good but still a a little bit boring. So on day three, he kicked it up even a further gear. Hanging in the middle of the gorilla enclosure was a a vine, was this creeper. So he grabs hold of the creeper, and he begins to swing to and fro, making loud, ferocious gorilla noises. While the crowds gathered, they got bigger and bigger, cameras flashed, M&Ms rained down. Higher and higher he swung, until finally the creeper snapped. And in a graceful parabolic arc, which our mechanical engineer friend could probably describe to us with mathematical equations, he flew out of the gorilla enclosure and landed with a crash in the the lion enclosure next door. 
He comes around from the mild concussion to see a large, angry-looking lion advancing on him, muscles rippling beneath its silky skin, saliva dripping from every fang. So he begins to cry out to the crowds, Help, help, help! I'm not really a gorilla. I'm just a man, a man in a suit. Please, somebody save me. Well, in one fluid motion, the lion leaps, it springs, it pins him to the floor, and then it says in a fierce whisper, Shut up, you'll get all of us fired! True story. Um, <laughs> why do I start the sermon this morning, the message this morning? Well, that terrible, terrible joke. Well, I start for a good reason. When we think about this issue, about Jesus and a world of other religions, so many people I meet think that the different religions in the world are a bit like the, the animals in that story. That outwardly they may look different, but underneath they are basically the same. You know, all the religions of the world are essentially the same. And so along come people like me and many of us here who are Christians, and we say that it's all about Jesus and Jesus is unique. And that often gets interpreted as arrogance. You know, how can you Christians be so arrogant, so intolerant, so so narrow-minded as to make even Donald Trump look like a liberal in saying that, never do that joke ever again, um, (laughs) that Jesus is the only way. See, I grew up in in London, and uh, uh, the part of London I grew up in and it's probably like here in Edinburgh, you could pick from, from every conceivable religion. Where I lived in London, you could choose from Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Jainism, Judaism, Islamism, secularism, atheism. You could even support the local football team, Crystal Palace. That We call that masochism. Um, <laughs> all of these different isms out there. And so how conceivably do many people say, can we live in this pluralistic world And you Christians say that there is something special about Jesus. Well, I have a friend who teaches at one of uh, Canada's leading universities, University of Toronto. And uh, his answer to this question, if he were here, he calls himself a a pluralist. He basically believes that every religion is essentially the same. You don't need to choose uh, uh, one in particular. You can can pick and mix them all. I remember once having a coffee with him in in, uh, Toronto. He was paying, so I picked Starbucks. Uh, I always pick McDonald's when I'm paying. Six bucks, we used to call that store in Toronto, but there we are. And over coffee, he shared with me this illustration that he'd come up with to to try to talk me out of what he saw as my narrow-minded ways and thinking that there was something unique about Jesus. He said, Andy, why why don't we imagine that all the different religions of the world are a bit like uh, the summit of the mountain. God, rather, is the summit of the mountain. Imagine a mountain, there's Mount Everest, and and God is is the summit of the mountain. Why not think about all the different religions of the world as being like like paths up that mountain? So yes, there's the Christian path to the top of the mountain, but there's also the Buddhist path up the mountain, and the Hindu path, and the Sikh path, and the Jewish path. There's even the atheist path. Actually, they don't believe in God, so that goes around in circles around the bottom of the mountain, but they've still got their path too. Rather than be exclusive like you are, why not assume every path just leads to the top? And that sounds like a very simple idea, and maybe some of you this morning are attracted to that idea. You know, why don't we just hug everybody and assume that everybody's right, and we can have Jesus alongside Muhammad and Buddha and everybody else. What's the, what's the problem with that idea? Well, as my friend looked at me over his coffee and sort of smiled serenely, I looked back at him and I said, Jeff, that's a lovely picture. He said, isn't it? I said, yes, it is. I said, there's, there's just, well, one problem with it, really, two maybe, but one problem in particular. He said, what's the problem? I said, well, the problem is I climb mountains. 
for a hobby. In fact, I've been to Mount Everest uh, some years back, not to the top, but about 18,000 feet. I climbed most of the Munros here in Scotland and you know, other bits and pieces. And I said, I've, I've climbed mountains, Jeff, and I can tell you 20 years of climbing mountains tells me that every path does not lead to the top. <laughs> some paths just lead to the toilets and the car park. Some paths lead to the tea shop. Some paths do go in circles around the bottom. Some paths go over the back of the mountain, around the side of the mountain. Some paths end in vertiginously dangerous cliff faces because they were built by rock climbers, the most insane people on the planet, and the list goes on. If you are up a mountain, if you're on the top of Ben Nevis or somewhere, and the fog comes down, you have no compass, and Siri has taken a break, the only, if you follow the first path you find at random, assuming you'll be okay, you will probably end up as a small pizza-shaped stain on the, mount, on the rocks at the bottom of the mountain. He looked a bit sad at this point. Canadians do a very good sort of, uh, you know, sort of sad puppy-looking face when you sort of say this kind of thing to them. And I said, well, it gets worse, actually, Jeff. He said, well, how could it get worse? You just wrecked my illustration. I said, well, here's the other question I have for you. Where would you have to be standing to see that every path leads to the top of the mountain? Where would you have to be? He thought about it for a moment and he said, well, I guess you'd need to be on the summit of the mountain. I said, well, no, not really, because if you've ever stood on the summit of a mountain, you can't see where the paths go, right? They sort of disappear over the edge in many cases. He thought again for a moment, and he said, well, what about if I was floating several hundred metres above the mountain, kind of Google Earth for you? And I said, well, that could work. I said, there's just one problem. He said, what's the problem? I said, Jeff, you said that God is the summit of the mountain. You've now put yourself several hundred metres above him. So my question for you this morning, Jeff, is who do you think you are and should I be down on my knees worshipping you once I finish my flat white? You know, it's interesting that as you begin pressing into this question, the simplistic idea that it's all the same very quickly begins to, to evaporate. And, you know, until the mid-1990s, I hadn't really, if I'm honest, thought much about this question of how do we think about Jesus and a world of other religious options. I'd been raised in a kind of Christian background. I'd never really talked much to those who believed other things. So probably, if you'd pressed me back then, I would probably have signed up for some sort of, um, sort of weak version of, the, well, I guess we're all largely uh, the same, right? And then in uh, the late 1990s, in fact, in 1997, I went along to a place in London uh, called Speaker's Corner, You've heard of Speaker's Corner. It's part of Hyde Park in London. And on a Sunday afternoon, you can stand on a ladder or a soapbox, or in my case, being short, two boxes and a ladder. And you could talk about anything religion, politics, sport, you name it. It's kind of the world center of free speech. And at Speaker's Corner, I found lots of people from different religious backgrounds willing to argue with me. I met atheists, I met Buddhists, I met Hindus, but in particular, I met Muslims, hundreds of Muslims go to Speaker's Corner on a weekend. And I got a crash course in the idea that rather than being superficially different but fundamentally the same, Speaker's Corner, I discovered that actually the great religions of the world are fundamentally different and only superficially similar. And in fact, I had such fun there talking particularly to my Muslim friends that I ended up going on and doing a PhD uh, in Quranic studies. And the more that I investigated Islam, and I've spoken to thousands of Muslims around the world now over the years, the more I investigated Islam, the more I was drawn inexorably to the conclusion that Christianity and Christianity alone was true. Now, you are a wonderfully polite audience here at King's Church this morning. If I were to say that just down the road on one of the campuses of Edinburgh University, they would probably throw things, 
or at least frown at you in that way that people do in this part of the country. Um, how narrow-minded, how, how intolerant, how can you possibly stand there, Andy, and say that Christianity is true and Islam, Buddhism and Hinduism and so forth, so forth aren't? Now, maybe that's your reaction this morning. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're a guest this morning, you're thinking, well, that does sound a little bit kind of narrow-minded. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're a Christian, you're thinking, well, it sort of feels like it's narrow-minded and it makes me a bit embarrassed so I don't say anything. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, I've got friends at work or university, if I just used the line that you used, Andy, I would be in real trouble. If any of those of your reactions this morning, I want you to think about uh, something for a moment. In fact, consider a couple of thoughts. Firstly, the thought I want you to consider this morning is that all truth claims are exclusive. All truth claims are exclusive. If I say that the capital of Scotland is Dundee, there are many in my fair city who think that it should be and that it is the centre of the universe and so on. I would be, there would be a problem, right? Because there are many of you in this room who clearly think the answer is Edinburgh. There may be a few strange people who think it's Fort William or whatever else. But to go, we clearly can't both be right. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. Two plus two is four, which means we exclude people who are challenged in the mathematics and think that it's five, eight, or 467. In fact, the only way to avoid being exclusive about truth is never to say anything. So shut your mouth, sip your lip, and never say anything. Because the moment you make any claim, you are excluding people who think differently to you. So if that's the case, and most people take that as an obvious self-given, why is it that people get so nervous about religion? Why is it people have no problem with the idea that there can only be one capital of a country or only one right answer to a sum, but the moment you bring that over into the area of religion, people start looking at you funny? Why is that? Well, you know, the more I've pondered this question, the more I've come to realise that I think it's because in the minds of many people, religion and spirituality and all of those things is basically about being good and about being nice. So when you say, my religion is true and the other religion is false, or any such of those kind of claims, people interpret it, they translate it into hearing me saying, or you saying, if you're a Christian here this morning, they translate it into you saying, Christians are good people, and Muslims, Hindus, Jews, Buddhists, and atheists aren't. It's interpreted as you saying, you are better than they are. And to such people, and if that's, if that's resonating with you this morning, I want to raise a thought this morning. What if true religion, what if true religion has incredibly little to do with being good? What if true religion has very, very little to do with being good? Let me read you a very short uh, encounter uh, between Jesus and a young man who thought that religion was all to do with being good. The story I'm about to read to you comes from Mark's Gospel in the New Testament, the, uh, the second of the four biographies of Jesus of Nazareth we can find there in the New Testament. And I'm going to put it on the screen uh, behind you, so if you haven't got a Bible this morning, we can follow along. Famous story, but it gets to the, uh, the nub of this issue quite nicely. Mark tells us uh, about this encounter. He begins this way. He says, as Jesus begat started on his way, and man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. Have you ever noticed, by the way, for those of us who are Christians, that is the strangest answer to an evangelistic question ever? If you go home tomorrow, tonight, and after the service rather, and tonight your neighbour knocks on your door and says, good Christian, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I bet most of you hopefully will say, come to the Alpha course at King's Church on Thursday and uh, we'll get the answer to that question. You wouldn't use Jesus' answer. But look what Jesus says. Good teacher. Sorry, why, why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except 
God alone. You know the commandments. Uh, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything. Give to the poor and then, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the young man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So many things we could say about that encounter. But what's interesting is that young man thought, in the way that many people do today, he thought religion was all about being good. In fact, as one of my uh, friends once put it, uh, the biggest religion, the most popular religion in the world is not Christianity or Islam or atheism or any of those things. The most popular religion in the world today is good personism. It's the idea that if there is a God and he or she exists and there's a heaven up there somewhere, as long as I'm a good person, I will get there uh, in the end. And this is what the young man here is, is repeating to Jesus. You know, okay, Jesus, yeah, yeah, it's about being good, right? And so the commandments, yeah, I've kept those, every single one of them. I've kept them, I've worked hard, I've obeyed. And it's interesting that so many religions in the world do operate this way. There's a list of commandments to obey, and if you keep them, your score goes up, your sort of spiritual score, as it were. And once you get to the right score, you know, God's got some has got a sort of score in mind. Once you hit that, bingo, you know, you get the golden ticket, like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory thing, and you know, you're in, you've made it. Buddhism operates to a sense this way. Hinduism and Islam certainly operates this way. Be good. Keep the commandments and uh, you, will, you can earn your way to paradise, nirvana, um, heaven, Dundee, wherever it is that you're, you're looking for. There's only one religion I know, only one religion I know that reverses this traffic pattern built into so many of the others and says no. No, being good is actually nothing to do with it. It's nothing to do with getting to God, that you can't get to God on our own efforts. Christianity takes that pattern and the other religions and reverses it entirely and says you can't uh, be good enough. We're not clever enough, smart enough, nice enough or moral enough on our own to get to God. Nothing we can do could bridge that gap between ours and God, which is actually incredibly depressing. But the good news is that God in his mercy and his love and his grace, has bridged the gap from his side and has sought us out. And Christians are not men and women who think they are clever enough or moral enough or nice enough to have figured it out and found God on our own. That would be mind-numbingly, staggeringly arrogant. But a Christian is somebody who is humble enough to realize that we can't do it on our own and thank God that he has done it in Jesus Christ, that we need rescue, something that the Bible says God has done in and through the person of Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, is the great differentiator. Jesus is the great differentiator uh, behind all of this. And, of course, the title of this morning's talk was, given all those options out there, why Jesus? Well, one obvious answer is he is the one who reverses that traffic pattern built into every other religion. That's what makes him unique. The startling claim of Jesus is we can't do it. We can't get to God on our own goodness, our own morality, or our cleverness, or any of those things. We can't construct this religious edifice that leads to, leads to heaven. But God who steps down in the person of Jesus and comes and finds us. It is, uh, that's, what, uh, that's what makes uh, Christianity unique. And it's not that Christians are arrogant 
arrogant or bigoted or intolerant or narrow-minded for claiming uh, that. Jesus himself claims that. That was what made him unique. But unique is an interesting word to throw around. And it leads to the question, well, how precisely is Jesus unique? And so in the last half of the talk this morning, I want to share with you very quickly this morning three specific ways in which Jesus is utterly unique, that they make him stand up head and shoulders above every other possible religious claimant out there, such that this morning, if you are a doubter or a seeker or a skeptic or whatever you like to label yourself, and you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, three reasons why I would start in my spiritual quest by taking a look at him because of who he is and how he stands out, as it were, from the competition. And we're going to take another passage from the Bible to help us just look at these three ways very quickly in our last 20 minutes this morning. And this time it comes from the fourth of those four biographies of Jesus, the four Gospels in the New Testament. We're going to look right at the start of the fourth one, John's Gospel, and just read a couple of our paragraphs and then dig in to what we can see illustrated here. So in John chapter 1, we read these words. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then moving on to verse 14, we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, John there writing those words about Jesus and goes on to unpack uh, his life in his uh, gospel there. Three things that are unique about the Christian faith, unique about Jesus, who stands at the center of it this morning. And the first is its origin. The first thing that's unique about Christianity and about Jesus is the origin of the Christian faith. And the unique thing about how Christianity begins is that the founder of the Christian faith claimed to be God himself. Muhammad didn't make that claim. Buddha didn't make that claim. The gurus in Eastern religion didn't make that claim. Jesus didn't claim to be just another guru. He didn't claim to be just another teacher of morals. He didn't claim to be just another Jewish wise man or a prophet or any of those things. He claimed to be the creator God himself, come to reconcile us to himself. You know, it's long fascinated me that you could take the founder of any other of the world's religions out of history, and they could still stand. Those religions could still exist. Take Buddhism, for example. If the Buddha had never been born, somebody else could have come and taught the religion of Buddhism, and it could still look largely the same. Dan could have started it. He could have taught Buddhism, and it might be called Danism, and there'd be little statues of Dan in green jade all across mantelpieces across across Asia. Um, But it would still look like Buddhism. It would be largely the same. The same goes for Islam. If Muhammad had never been born in 570 AD, somebody else could have come and taught what became the Quran, and it could still look largely the same. In fact, Muslim theology is very clear on this point. Time and time again, it stresses Muhammad as just a man, just a human being, just an individual, nothing special. And so it goes on. And so it goes on until Jesus Christ. Because when you come to Christianity and Jesus, you discover something interesting. Because Christianity is not some sort of set of teachings or ideas brought by him, but really is Jesus himself, his personality, his identity, you discover something interesting. Take Jesus out of history and Christianity falls. In fact, as one comedian remarked, if you take Christ out of Christian, you are left with three letters, I, A, and N. And Ian 
cannot help you. <laughs> I did this talk in Canada a few months ago, and someone at the end came up to me and said, Andy, I've got a, I've got a real problem with your talk. I thought, oh, hello, what have I said? He said, yes, my name is Ian. Um, <laughs> I said, I'm sure you can do many things, Ian, but not what Jesus did. He went, yes, fair point. Um, in other words, Christianity isn't some teachings brought by Jesus, some list of morals brought by Jesus, some wonderful new experience taught by Jesus, but Jesus made it all about himself time and time again, like the rich young ruler. We read that story in Mark. What does he say to him? He doesn't say, go and follow the Old Testament, the Torah. He says, sell everything and then come and follow me. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, quoting the Old Testament, but I say to you, Jesus, that elsewhere in John's Gospel, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Time and time again, Jesus makes it all about himself. In a sense, the question at the heart of considering the Christian faith is, were those claims true or not? That's how you can assess whether Christianity is true. Christianity is unique, then, in its origin, the way it's so centred on the person of Jesus. Secondly, Christianity is uh, unique in its method. What do I mean by that? Well, it's interesting that uh, anthropologists and academics and people with lots of PhDs and things have looked at the different religions of the world and have noticed for many years, actually, it's been noticed that you can group all the different religions of the world, all the hundreds and thousands of them, into sort of three groups, really. There are religions based uh, upon thinking, there are religions based upon feeling, and there are religions based upon doing. So, for example, in religions based on feeling, you have to master or memorize or become an expert in the, in the teachings behind them. Buddhism is the, is the classic case in this. You master the Buddha's teachings, you learn the, the noble truths and the, and the eightfold path and so forth and become an expert in it. And if you do that, then hopefully you will achieve nirvana or wisdom or whatever it is you're, you're looking for. For many years, I, I had a friend in Toronto who was a Zen Buddhist Monk, and this was his life, memorizing and, and mastering the, the teachings of the, of the Buddha so that he would achieve, as he put it to me, Buddha consciousness in the end. Very, very thought-based, very thinking-based. Then we have religions based on feeling. In religions based on feeling, you have to have the right kind of mystical experience, get in touch with yourself, get in touch with the transcendent or, or the numinous or your spiritual side, have some kind of you know, existential moment in which you encounter the divine that transforms your life and everything after that is uh, wonderful and roses and rainbows and unicorns and so on. And then you have religions based upon doing. Now, religions based on doing, these are the commandments you obey them, you work hard, put these principles into practice, you know, keep these laws, follow these principles, and you will arrive at heaven, nirvana, paradise, the summit of the mountain, Dundee, you know, wherever it is, uh, is you're going there. Now, interestingly, every religion in the world, every religion in the world is based on one of these three ways or a combination of them. Every religion in the world, that is, except Christianity. Very, very interesting that Christianity and the gospel is not a system of thought. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to think about. Christianity is not a set of feelings, although those of us who know Jesus Christ would say it's transforming and brings peace and security in a way that we heard in that testimony. That's not primarily what it is. And nor is the gospel, nor is Christianity, this set of deeds or rituals that you go through, some set of morals that you try and keep, although it will change how you behave if you really, really believe it. Jesus didn't come to bring new thoughts, new feelings, or new moral commands. He came to reveal God to us in his very person, his very identity. And that's what makes him and the Christian faith unique. 
A couple more words on this, though, because I think it's just so important when understanding the differences uh, out there, as it were, on the religious table of options. You know, religions, religious systems based on, on thinking uh, are all about ideas and about words. Here are the teachings, and you master them. They're all about ideas and words. Interesting, then, in that context, when we just saw in John chapter 1, where John says, in the, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. In other words, the gospel is not an idea, some kind of vague kind of concept, but Jesus actually comes and actually makes God known to us. Jesus is unique, and he doesn't just talk about God. He is God. Come to reveal who God is to us. If you want to know what God looks like and who he is, says the New Testament, then read the, read the gospels. Get to meet Jesus Christ. He actually makes it concrete Whereas in so many other religions, it's ideas and theory. Religions based on feeling. Uh, just to flesh this one out uh, for a moment. It's all about the, the kind of experience, the encounter that overwhelms you and changes your life forever. Well, it's interesting. In John chapter 17, verse 3, a few chapters on from where we were a little while ago, Jesus defined life. And he defined life in terms of knowing him. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said, life means knowing me. And that raises a question for each one of us here this morning. Have you found that life? Perhaps some of you here this morning would call yourself a seeker, a skeptic, a doubter. You're here to check this stuff out. But there are also those of us who sometimes call that, can call ourselves Christians. And we haven't actually really connected with this Life. You can easily grow up, perhaps if you've grown up in a Christian home, with this idea that Christianity is the sort of thing you do. You go to church on Sunday and you hang around the Christian faith, but you haven't actually encountered fullness of life in Jesus. And it interests me that everybody I meet is looking for fullness of life. I meet students who are pursuing it in grades and academic success. I meet business guys and uh, and women who are chasing it in riches and uh, power and so forth. I meet religious sort of types who are chasing it in spiritual experience. But Jesus said time and time again, true life, true life, he said, only comes through knowing him. And that is ultimately, of course, why every other religious system fails, because we can't create life in ourselves. We can't create life in ourselves by our own brilliance, by our own hard work, by our own accumulation of possessions. It has to come from outside. It has to be a gift. And that's the beauty and the challenge of the gospel, that Jesus looks at each one of you this morning and says, I want you to have life, and it's a gift. It's a gift. It's completely free. That's the beautiful part of it. It's also a challenge, because most of us in this room probably are talented, capable, able people. And the idea that we can't ourselves add something to the equation is terribly humbling. The gospel requires nothing. Problem is that most of us have a darn sight more than nothing, and we often insist in dragging it in uh, to the equation. Jesus did not come, you see, ultimately, to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. And there's a huge difference between those two things. And then lastly, uh, religious systems based on doing are very pragmatic. Great long lists of rules and regulations. Uh, you look at, the, uh, for example, the uh, Sharia law codes in Islam, book after book after book, with lists of commands and regulations, do this, don't do this, keep these instructions, and so on. And if you do, you can earn merit and blessing and favour. 
Well, it's interesting, Jesus time and time again ran into people who bought into this kind of worldview. In fact, elsewhere in John's Gospel, in John 6, verse 28, his own disciples still haven't figured it out because they come to him and they say, Jesus, what, what must we do? Uh, what must we do to do the works that God requires? They're thinking this way. They're thinking, okay, there must still be, you haven't told us yet, Jesus, but it's presumably somewhere buried away. You've got this list of regulations. Tell us what it is and we'll keep them. Interesting to look how Jesus answers. They ask in the plural, what are the, what are the works we have to do, the things we have to do? Jesus replies in the singular, the, the work of God is to believe, is to trust in the one he has sent. And then all of this flows together into John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says these incredibly controversial and famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus claimed to be the way to live, he claimed to be truth embodied, and he claimed to be the gift of life itself. And so, in a sense, what Jesus does in that little statement is take up all the claims of every other religion out there and supersedes them and claims to fulfill them. If you think it's about moral truth, well, that's fulfilled in Jesus. If you think it's about head knowledge, well, Jesus, again, is the word uh, made flesh. And again, if you think it's about mystical experience and pursuing life whilst as Jesus, that too is found in me. And so actually, when people come to me and, and, and offer the, uh, the, uh, the objection, you know, why Jesus? Why, why Jesus among all the other options out there? Sometimes I like to gently turn the question around and say, well, who else should I compare him with? Show me somebody else who made the claims he did. Show me somebody else who lived the life that he did. Show me somebody else who gave his life for me like he did. Show me somebody else who rose from the grave like he did. He literally stands in a class of one. Which if this morning you're here as a visitor or a guest or a seeker, that makes it really easy. Because the question then becomes, is he telling the truth about himself? It enables us to take a look at his life and decide, was he telling the truth? In which case we should follow him. Or was he some kind of dangerous lunatic or some other option? Uh, and therefore should we turn our back and walk away? But there's no middle ground uh, when it comes to Jesus. So the gospel is unique in its origin. It's uh, unique in its, uh, in its method. And then lastly... Lastly, and then we'll wrap this up, it's unique in its purpose. What do I mean by that? What's the purpose of the gospel? What's the purpose of Jesus coming? It's a good question to ask and and think about for a moment. And I think in a nutshell, it's all about transformation. It's about transformation when you read the, the message of Jesus. And actually, it's interesting when you look at those other religious options out there. You see, other religions will tell you, if you think the right thing, if you have the right feeling, if you work hard enough, then maybe, maybe just one day, maybe you will achieve some kind of personal transformation. You might end up in heaven or nirvana or paradise. Your life may, may change, but, but one day... After years of hard thought or or hard work or meditating, whatever it is, built into that system. And once again, along comes Jesus and along comes Christianity and reverses that entire pattern and says, you know what? It doesn't end with transformation. It doesn't end with transformation. It begins with transformation. There in the heart of the New Testament, we find this amazing verse in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, where we read these incredible words. If anyone, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new Creation, the old has gone, the new has come. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ and invite him to be Lord and Saviour, place your trust in him, you are transformed and you are at that moment a different person. And so again, the question I have for each one of you here this morning is do you know what that new creation life looks like? Do you really know what it looks like? 
Or have you yet, have you, or are you still playing around with the idea that Christianity is a, is a set of ideas, a, a religious system or a philosophy or an apologetic or some mystical experience or even some list of commands to follow? None of those things are true. To be a Christian is not to be morally upright or perfectly thought through or to have some sort of wonderful experience where you float around an inch above the ground. To be a Christian is to know that transformation in your very, very being. And what's interesting about that, when you think about that, when you think about the world that we live in, that's what our world is crying out for. You look at the mess our world is in right now. Wherever you look, it seems something is going wrong in some part of the globe. Clearly what is needed for human beings is not more information. We live in an age of Google where you can find any question or any comedy cat video at the click of a button. We live in an age of incredible moral information. It seems to be everywhere. If you've got any problem, any ethical dilemma, there's opinions everywhere. And everywhere you look, people seem to be talking about mystical experiences. You can wander off to the east and rediscover yourself uh, on a fairly cheap economy plane ticket. None of those things seem to have changed and solved the problems of the world. We are not looking for mystical experiences or more information or more moral commands. The problem that we face as human beings is that our very natures, our very hearts, are twisted and broken and messed up. What we need is new creation. One of my favourite writers, uh, probably known to many of you, is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, famous, of course, for for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all those uh, kind of things. But um, not many people are aware he was a man of deep Christian faith. Very, very deep Christian faith. And this comes out a lot in his letters and his diaries. And in a letter to a friend he wrote towards the end of his life, um, he picks up on a sort of universal human problem that he perceived everywhere. Let me read you what Tolkien wrote. He said, we, we all long for Eden. And we are, we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, at its best and its least corrupted, its gentlest and its most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. What What he's playing with here is the idea that most human beings, when we stop and think about it, we know that we've lost something. We know that that the world isn't quite the way it should be. We know that we're not quite the way it should be. There's that sense of loss, that sense of needing something, that sense of peace, not being able to find peace uh, in the midst of the lives that we're living. I, I meet that everywhere I go. I see that in the university students I talk to. I have business leaders tell me the same kind of thing. I see that as I talk to to people who, in one sense, on paper, have everything the world could possibly want to offer you, but are still struggling with that sense of the something missing. And this, this is the problem that Jesus came to address, and he does so uniquely. Jesus is not interested in you thinking the right thoughts primarily. He's not interested in you having some wonderful experience or is interested in changing your pattern of behavior although all of those things will follow. His primary aim is to move us from darkness into light, to bring us back into relationship with the God who created you and loves you and knows the best for you, which is for you to be in a relationship with him. That is what being a Christian means. So if you're sitting here this morning and you either think, or even you've drifted into thinking if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're playing with the idea, if in your mind is the idea that being a Christian is all about believing the right things, having the right kind of theology, or having the answer to every question, you know, being completely sorted, having no doubts or whatever, or doing the right thing. Maybe some of you here this morning think being a Christian is about being, doing the right thing, being a moral person. If even you've tried to experiment with those things, but you have never added to them new life, then you have not grasped the reality of who Jesus is and what being a Christian means. 
Because being a Christian is not a state of mind. Being a Christian is a state of being. And that is why Jesus said, I have come, I have come that you may have life and you may have it to the full. My prayer for each one of you here this morning is if you haven't yet discovered this, that you will, in the weeks and months ahead of you, come to that living relationship with Jesus and discover what true life means. If uh, you're here as a skeptic or a doubter or a visitor, an agnostic this morning, get yourself along to the Alpha Course. It's a brilliant place to begin discovering who Jesus is. But also, if you're sitting here this morning and you would sort of self-identify as a Christian, but inside you is that nagging doubt that there is more to life than just church on wet Sunday mornings and sort of endlessly going through the motions, and you too need that new life, then why don't you connect with the prayer team this morning and come back and make that reconnection afresh to the Jesus who gave everything for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that when we look at the huge range of options out there on the religious table, all the different beliefs and ideas and ideologies in the world, that you stand head and shoulders above them. And that to say that is an arrogance, to say that is to just wrestle and grapple with uh, what you said about yourself. Lord, thank you that for many of us who spend our lives working hard, striving, trying, uh, trying to think the right way, live the right way, endlessly trying to climb up the mountain, thank you that you come to us and say, child, you can just rest and uh, let me come to you rather than you try and climb your way upwards to me. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that if there are those here today who've come to kind of check some of this stuff out, think these things through, wrestle these things through, thank you that they've taken that first step to encountering you. And I pray that whether through what they've heard today or through the Alpha Course, they might discover who you are. But, Lord, especially for those of us who call ourselves Christians, Lord, you know that we too can be guilty at times of bearing you beneath religion or ideology or uh, theology or morality or whatever. And not only does that break our own hearts and yours, it uh, damages our witness to the world. Uh, For any of us for whom that might be an issue this morning, would you challenge us now to come back to the foot of the cross, bow the knee and fall in love with who you are and what you've done for us once again. Thank you that you are unique and that you love us. In your precious name.